but we're very good at hunting people right now. I mean, we're phenomenal at it. And I, I don't think it's any different in the near peer thing. We will find their strengths, we will find their weaknesses, and we will absolutely be there to exploit them. Defense Podcast, the show about defense procurement, military technology, and the industry that gets the kit into the hands of the warfighter. We're brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, NAMO. I'm your host, Helen Haxel, Air Domain Editor here at Shepherd Media, coming to you from our global headquarters in a rather windy West London. On the show this week, our Deputy Land Editor, Beth Maundrell, talks to Dominic Poon of ST Engineering about their latest all-terrain vehicle, the Bronco 3. Tony Skinner, VP of Content, has a chat with Stu Braden, the CEO of the Global Soft Foundation, about what the foundation offers, as well as the current state of the Special Forces market. And our sponsor, NAMO, provides this week's Industry Voice segment. But first, our weekly news roundup, and I'm here with Richard Thomas, Editor-in-Chief. Hello. Beth Maundrell, Deputy Editor-Land. Hi, Helen. And Tim Martin, our air reporter. Hi, Helen. To talk about what's caught their eye this week, first thing and only thing on the agenda is the highly anticipated US DOD budget, which forms the Trump administration's wish list, a request of sorts. On this agenda is... The US DOD would receive $718 billion in FY2020, a 5% increase from the FY2019 enacted level. The administration has said that the budget would continue its efforts to enhance the military's lethality and readiness to counter growing threats from China, Russia and beyond. So while DOD procurement would receive $143 billion down, $4 billion from last year. The department's research and development would get a $9 billion boost to $104 billion. Now, that sounds to me like a lot of billions and in some parts some increases. So what does this mean for the domains? I'll hand over now to our experts. Tim, what does this mean for AIR? Thanks, Helen. Yeah, so as you mentioned, there's a $4 uh, billion reduction from uh, the amount spent in FY 2019, specifically on procurement yeah. programs. Um, so yeah, a heavy chunk of that is from the R domain. So from 20, 2019 uh, request, there was uh, seven, sorry, 93 aircraft requested for wow. F-35s, and that's um, being reduced now to 78. Um, so quite a significant yeah. uh, reduction uh, there on... Uh, other programs, there's three fewer KC-46 tankers being requested. So from 15 in, in FY2019 to 12, uh, now in FY2020. And there'll also be uh, a reduction in uh, AH-64 uh, Apaches, mm-hmm. um, eight fewer for the Army. Um, so I guess, yeah, the big one for our will be the F-35. Yeah, um, sounds it. Yeah, and um, I suppose you can link back the, the issues on the remote vision system on the KC-46. Um, and and perhaps that's uh, now really a bit of consequence, um, 
given that you know that's been such a, a long running issue. Um, so Absolutely. the option of reducing that procurement is quite significant, I think, from the DoD. Sounds it to me. Beth, land is the money being spread elsewhere, perhaps. <laughs> um, so in terms of ground systems, uh, the budget request. Uh, total is 14.6 billion now this um, comprises a mixture of new vehicles and upgrades to older um, vehicles that are in service so just have a look at these and some of these we've like reported on recently as well um, for instance the armored multi-purpose vehicle ampv um, entered low rate production this year um, interestingly the numbers of these being acquired has reduced slightly from fy19 um, which was at 197 vehicles requested and uh, this year the fy20 budget sees just 133 um, this includes the overseas contingency budget um, for the US Marine Corps, uh, the amphibious combat vehicle again was in the news recently as BAE Systems had won the production contract for that at the end of 2018. Um, this year's budget request looks at 56 uh, vehicles there. So for new vehicles, um, we're seeing some slight reductions Um one in particular is that um, all services will procure the JLTV, the Joint Light Tactical Vehicle, which we spoke about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago because there have been some issues with um, mm. testing that had been happening and stuff. Um, and it's notable that this request um, has been reduced uh, in terms of the numbers of vehicles from over 5,000 in the FY19 budget to just over 4,000 this year's budget. Now, I would imagine this is probably because of the delay, which we spoke about in uh, the previous podcast, as I mentioned, um, in the full rate production contract. Um, but good news um, seems to be on the upgrade path. Um, so the Abrams main battle tank, that's got quite a lot of funding to um, upgrade at least 165 of those and the army continues to modernize um, its striker vehicles and this sees the number of vehicles to be upgraded increase from 82 um, which was requested in FY19 to 152 this year so it's obviously a um, platform that the US Army and the uh, administration see as critically important to those uh, future operational environments and building a more lethal force. Are we seeing a lot of reductions, Richard, or upgrades with regards to C? Reductions in budget requests? Not really, no. The seaside has done <laughs> the seaside <laughs> has done very well out of the uh, request, of course, still has to be, you know, debated and approved. Yeah, um, generally speaking, it's positive. Uh, there's a lot of uh, construction or a lot of funds being put towards construction, such as the three flight, three Arleigh Burke DDGs. That's interesting. There's three uh, Virginia-class submarines which will be built, and the first of the Columbia-class, actually, the SSBNs, uh, with the common missile compartment that will also be located or situated, installed even, on the Dreadnought-class that will uh, operate for the Royal Navy. Um, a bit of negative news, I suppose. We, we spoke previously about the Harry Truman, Harry S. Truman aircraft carrier. It looks like that will 
uh, leave service ahead of time. So that will drop the Navy's fleet down to about 10 aircraft carriers as they bring the Ford class online. So that's a, that's a loss for them. Um, but uh, another um, significant request has been $1.36 billion mm-hmm. for the first in class of the FFGX. Now, we've, uh, we reported from Washington in January that uh, NAVSI were looking at uh, ships 2 through 20 to cost about $950 million apiece. So the first in class obviously always breaches this, this sort of benchmark. Um, but significant that the, that the platform clearly is going ahead. The design will be uh, selected probably back end of this year. So 2020, we'll see the first in class, yeah. Thanks, all. Coming up on the podcast, our VP content, Tony Skinner, is in Tampa, Florida, talking special forces with the Global Soft Foundation. But first, right after a short break, Beth speaks to ST Engineering about the company's all-terrain vehicle. So we wanted to take a minute to talk about one of our more popular hard copy products. Um, Our handbooks have long been regarded as a valuable, concise reference source for industry professionals. And the data contained within each handbook forms a key foundational element for Shepard Plus, which is our business intelligence platform. Now in 2019, our handbooks are going to provide even greater value for readers. In addition to the product and supplier listings that the industry has come to rely on, each handbook will now contain an extended market report section, which draws on the exclusive content held within Shepard Plus, as well as the knowledge base of our expert team of analysts. In coming weeks, you can find us at Quad A in Nashville, AUVSI Exponential, Rotorcraft Unmanned Systems Asia, and IDF in Istanbul, among other trade shows. So do come and find us for your free copy of our handbooks, simply in exchange for a business card. I'm joined by Beth Maundrell, our deputy land editor, who recently went on an expedition to the Arctic Circle. Beth, those pictures did look absolutely incredible, that crispy white snow. Yeah, um... (laughs) I was up in Finland, obviously, as you said, in the Arctic Circle, the snow was a few feet deep. We were at a uh, test centre that is used to uh, test commercial and military vehicles uh, with Singaporean company ST Engineering. So they were quite far from home and we were all feeling the cold a little bit, but it was a really good experience. And we got to see their all-terrain vehicle, the Bronco 3, have a spin in the snow. And obviously, if you think about the political, con- well, the geopolitical context uh, surrounding mm. a lot of operations today, that Arctic capability is quite high on a lot of countries' agendas. Um, so what's interesting about the Bronco 3 is the company is certainly positioning it for a lot of potential programs. A meeting in uh, Germany in late February had representatives from the UK, Germany, Finland, the Netherlands, Norway and Sweden discussing the feasibility of a joint procurement program for such all-terrain vehicles. Now, this is because a lot of these countries have got these vehicles, but they're quite old variants. For example, the BV206, which has been in service for quite a while. You've also got the likes of the UK MOD, which has the Warthog, which is actually a platform that pre was the predecessor of the Bronco 3, but it was developed under an urgent operational requirement. So it was really specifically designed for operations in Afghanistan. I think now they're just they're looking to 
something new just to replace it rather than trying to maintain something that only meets half a requirement. So, yeah, so I got to drive the the Bronco, the Bronco <laughs> 3 fun. through the snow. How do you do with that? Oh, it's actually... Good steering? <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually very easy to drive. Excellent. And um, ST actually put a lot of emphasis on the ease of use of the vehicle because in Singapore, their military is a conscripted military. So right. they were saying about how it needs to be easy to drive because you've not got career military people. Yeah, I understand. You've got people that need to learn stuff quite quickly. So can confirm... It's relatively easy to drive. I mean, there wasn't too much in my way, and I wasn't. I wasn't in. Did a, everyone move out of the way? Yeah, is this why? Yeah. Well, uh, we had some comments, but um, we'll let those uh, water let off those the ducks' slide. back. But yeah, so really interesting event. Good to get up there, um, see platforms in the uh, environments they were designed to be used in. Mm-hmm. Um, also, as well as the Bronco 3, they did have a BV206 running around as well to kind of show the difference between the newer and the older capability. But whilst I was there, I spoke to ST and um, I asked Dominic Poon, the uh, VP and product director at the company, about the vehicle and why ST Engineering brought it up to these colder climbs. The Bronco 3 is the latest uh, iteration or evolution from uh, our, our line of uh, Bronco products. In the past, we had the uh, Bronco 1, which is in service with uh, our local armed forces. And then uh, now, then we had the uh, Bronco 2, which was in service in uh, Afghanistan with the UK MOD. And now we have the 3. The 3 we have developed uh, through the years to encompass the best uh, capabilities of both one and two but in a lighter vehicle format Um, so we're here in Finland because there's an opportunity to meet up with a lot of uh, potential users uh, in one location to demonstrate that this beaker is very capable in traversing through this uh, difficult terrain in the Arctic because most of their applications are for snow uh, whether is it for the Alpine or for the Arctic uh, area So this is an opportunity to show that uh, we from sunny Singapore understands uh, the design and engineering that needs to go into designing a uh, over-snow vehicle. That's right. And um, we've got another vehicle here to um, give a bit of a comparison. Can you just tell us about that vehicle and why um, you're choosing to compare the Bronco 3 to the the other vehicle you have? Okay. Here we have a a BV206. Uh, a lot of the users in the world uh, are using the BV206. In fact, uh, since 1980s, 90s, we are talking about almost 11,000 vehicles out there that are still uh, being used in one form or another. And these users are looking at a new capability. They're looking at uh, a replacement for the 206. Uh, and that is why we have that vehicle here in comparison so that they can see, you know, what was uh, available in the past, which is a very good vehicle in the, in the form of the 206. But what can we do better now with the Bronco 3, yeah, in terms of traversing through the Arctic and snow areas? And um, obviously, you've t- talked to us already a little bit about the um, Bronco 3 and how it differs from the previous variants of the vehicle. So could you just go over that and maybe some of the highlights mm. of the Bronco 3 that make it the new version? Okay, so the, the big key gist of uh, Bronco 3 is that it now has the same production level as the uh, previous Bronco 2, 
but with a lighter package, meaning that the curb weight has been greatly reduced. We have actually lowered uh, the overall curb weight by some two and a half tons so that the vehicle can now carry uh, more payload. Uh, it's more efficient in the design, in the structural design. Uh, it's more easy to build because of the lower weight as well. And uh, because of that, uh, uh, capability of traversing through, through difficult terrains like the Arctic conditions here, as you see, uh, is, is a lot better than uh, the, the previous iteration of the Bronco. And um, obviously, there's quite a lot of opportunity, as you said, with the um, BVS being an older vehicle that needs to be replaced. And yeah. we know that the UK has a requirement out for these kind of all-terrain vehicles. So what are you expecting in like the coming months in terms of market opportunities and potential customers? Well, we hope to interact with uh, these uh, users who have uh, looking at seriously looking at replacing their 206 capability with something else that is more capable. Uh, so, we see the next few months as important uh, customer engagement opportunities. In fact, we started last year when we, we demonstrated it at, uh, at Bovington after the DSEI and then followed by uh, DVD and then IAV. Uh, the intention now with this Arctic demo, we hope to showcase the, the, the capabilities across not just different type of uh, terrain and environment, but also to give the customer the, the confidence that, you know, this vehicle is truly, truly uh, engineered for, for all sorts of uh, conditions as well as uh, environments. And um, finally then, uh, we've talked about um, the different variants earlier today, but yeah. one thing that we mentioned which could be a future development, which you've already tested on previous versions of the yeah. vehicle, is the autonomous element. So could you just talk about that? Because a lot of the customers you'll be engaging with will be mm. talking about how do you put an autonomous vehicle in partnership with the Bronco? Yeah. So the Bronco itself, uh, we, we use an articulated steering, which is hydraulics. Uh, it's very easy to convert that into uh, a, a drive-by-wire system. Uh, the throttle, the brakes are also drive-by-wire ready. So it's quite easy to just integrate sensors, camera systems, and then you can turn the whole vehicle into an autonomous or remotely operated vehicle. That's uh, one uh, uh, feature of this vehicle. Uh, so we already designed from onset the capability of drive-by-wire, which is the enabler for autonomy and uh, remote control. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Well, we look forward to seeing the future development of that. And um, from a uh, cold Finland, thank you very much for your time, Dominic. Thank you. wanted to take a short break into the podcast to tell you about Shepherd Studio. Studio is our branded content offering which gives industry a more creative way to tell their stories. Shepherd Studio works closely with companies and event organisers across the aerospace and defence industry to provide bespoke co-branded solutions. Whether it is support of a particular campaign, content surrounding a major trade show or bringing studio on board to more effectively tell a company story. Studio has already been adopted by many of the major defence primes. If you're interested in learning more about studio projects and how they could benefit your company, please contact us at www.shepherd.studio. So welcome back to the podcast. 
Uh, I'm here at the Grand Hyatt in Tampa, Florida. I'm here with Stu Braden, who's the president and CEO of the Global Soft Foundation. Hi, Stu. Hey, how are you? Good, thank you. So we're here at your annual symposium. Aside from it being a very good excuse to come to Florida in March, maybe you could just run us through, I guess, first of all, what's the Global Soft Foundation and, you know, what are you guys looking to achieve this week? Well, the Global Soft Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit. We're an educational nonprofit, but we're really a professional association for special operations. And we're global. We're truly global. We're based out of Tampa, Florida, because we retired out of here after 32 years in the military. And basically, we help convene and advocate for special operations worldwide. And, and what do you, I mean, we see a lot of uniforms down on the show floor already before the show's even started. Um, you know, so obviously there's a lot of dialogue going along, going, going on throughout the week. But, you know, what specifically are you guys looking to achieve in terms of providing this kind of forum? So, I mean, a, a lot of this, these forums are really about networking and trust. I mean, if you know anything about the special operations community, it, it, it all boils down to trust. I mean, uh, the, the types of equipment and interoperability and all that stuff is really good, but they, you know, our community is trust-based. And so if they don't know you, it doesn't matter how great your products are or who you are. Uh, if they don't really have a relationship with you and know you personally, uh, they're not going to do business with you and they're not going to communicate with you. And so these types of events um, bring people together. It gives them an opportunity to build a professional and personal relationship. A lot of these people are my friends. I've known them for 30 years. There's probably 30 plus countries here right now. I knew most of them when we were young, thin captains, and now several of them are, you know, two- and three-star generals and stuff. And so, I mean, it's just really, you know, bringing the community together. We don't just come together to drink beer in Tampa, Florida, even though that is very much a part of what we do. Um, the reality is it's a, it's a really aggressive agenda. It's focused on what the community wants. And what we do is we have a thing called a soft roundtable. It's a government-only one-hour piece. And during that time, all the folks in the that are attending the event – tell us what they want to have at these events, what kind of a discussion they're interested in, and, you know, where they're going. And then we try to tailor the events to meet what the community actually wants to do and wants from these events. And I guess along those lines, um, you know, obviously we have a lot of listeners ourselves across industry. You know, I guess they're going to be keen to hear about, in terms of the special forces kind of environment, you know, what are operators looking for? What sort of technologies are they asking for and what kind of challenges are they facing? Yeah, that's a great question. And it depends on each country, right? And I want to say it depends. So a couple of things we do, we follow a model that they use here at the Joint Special Operations Command. We, we have a, a, a capabilities catalog and it's a generic catalog. It's, it's not associated with any company. It's just a capability. And what we do is we work with the countries to fill those out to determine, you know, what capabilities they need and what the priority of those capabilities are. What it really does is it gives them a document that helps them engage with industry. And you think it's kind of easy, but, you know, you have to understand that a lot of the, the the international partners are former Soviet bloc countries. And so they're, they tend to be introverted, right? Because if you were an extrovert, you didn't last long in those regimes. And so this is a, you know, they're, they're, they're new to capitalism. It's only a couple decades old, and they're not really familiar with engaging in industry. And this kind of helps it creates a bridge between them and industry as a talking point and stuff. And, you know, the, 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 the countries that have needs and stuff from the industry, they reach out to us and we, we have our corporate partners write white papers for them. Again, it's the same exact method that they use here with the Joint Special Operations Command. And then if the nation's interested in the white paper, then they can have further discussions and do things. 
but the environment's very different depending on each country. Um, I will tell you that the, the United States is a very mature market and a lot of people want to, you know, come into the U.S. market and I will tell you, you should always try to be in it, but it's really mature. Um, where we see the most growth right now, frankly, is in Europe and really Eastern Europe. And it's not because President Trump, you know, beat up NATO. I don't, he's not said a single thing different than President Bush or President Obama. The, the reality is it takes a long time to get governments to adjust their spending cycles to match military requirements because it's expensive. I mean, it's a lot of money. And you have to justify that to taxpayers and citizens. And, and a lot of these governments, frankly, are fragile coalition governments. And so they got to go at it a little bit slower and a lot more deliberate. But they are moving forward. You know, they're edging. And if you've lived, you know, I've spent 21 years living overseas outside the U.S., so I understand it a little bit better. But the real growth that we see right now is in Europe and Eastern Europe. And it's beginning to move more and more into Asia and South America. And so what you're seeing is, is a lot of these countries, they want to become joint um, and they want to become more interoperable with NATO, the EU and the UN so they can actually be a part of these uh, global operations. And what they do is they tend to start with special operations. And not to sound arrogant, but, you know, the, these, these special ops folks are, there's a reason the first word special. Um, they get better educations, they get better training, they get better equipment. And, and these countries are using their special operations as springboards to basically transform their entire, minute, you know, Ministry of Defense. Um, and they, they, it's smaller, it's joint by nature, they can work it a little bit better, they can refine it, and then as they expose it to the, to the conventional forces, it proliferates through there and it grows and grows and grows. Some of these countries are growing at four times the size. Some of them are actually better than the U.S., uh, a lot of them, their special operations are separate services, which is, you know, they stand on par with the maritime and land components, which is really cool. That's something we don't have in this country. Each country is also different in how they do their procurement stuff. Like in the United States of America, the people that decide how we are as a, as a military is Congress. And if you, you know, they do Article One of the Constitution, you know, and, and they're the actual people that, that determine if we can or cannot do something. If you look at some of the other countries, they are allotted a certain amount of money, and the Minister of Defense has complete authority to do that. So it's all depending on what's going on. Um, you asked me about capabilities. I mean, some of the big ones are, you know, of course, everybody is trying to generate their own organic capability, right? So you, are, you have it. You can move at the speed of war. You can deploy at the speed of war and be more surgical. Uh, so ISR is huge. Communications, you know, electronic warfare, you know, the Russians, when they went into the Crimea, basically woke the world up. And, you know, since the end of the Cold War, we'd been ignoring or, or pretending that electronic warfare wasn't important. And now, uh, we've all woke up to some of the things that the Russians are capable of doing and the Chinese and, and the U.S. And they're all, and we were just like, oh my God. Um, so you're seeing a big focus on hardening a lot of the communications infrastructure, uh, you know, protecting against cyber attacks and those types of things. And so a lot of the equipment we have is good. It's just not protected. And so that's the second order. Um, but the other piece is mobility and stuff. And when I mean mobility, I'm not talking about just ground. I'm talking about the, the ability to strategically project forces at other locations outside their sovereign borders. Like in Europe, you see the A400. There's a lots of different lift capabilities. There's maritime capabilities where people are building maritime platforms that are, that you can almost station like an island, you know, um, special ops types islands out there. And it gives a nation a response capability that's more than nothing.
That's a long answer, but I will tell you the growth right now you're seeing in the special ops community, I mean, it's unprecedented. It's just absolutely unprecedented. So I mean, I guess we talked about um, the types of companies that should be coming along to these sort of events. Um, when you talk about ISR, when you talk about EW, that mobility piece, I guess companies that are offer- offering anything that's sort of disruptive technologies or anything, you know, that's kind of got that level of innovation – you guys are presumably trying to provide that forum for them for them to be able to directly engage with the soft community. Absolutely. So, I mean, what you're seeing right now is the the private sector's out innovating the the government. And and to be frank, the government will never catch up. I mean, I don't not in my lifetime uh, because there's so much technology growth out there. We are basically militarizing civilian type products and stuff. Uh, most governments are very bureaucratic. They have more rules and regulations than you can count. And so a lot of these companies are, frankly, they don't want to do business with governments. It's just, it's not because they don't, they're not patriotic. It's just because it's not a good business model. It's too slow. It's too cumbersome. And there's too much risk, you know, I mean, because you could lose it all if a government shuts down or a contract shifts and stuff. So it's just much more, more difficult to do business with governments and, and they don't move very fast. And so the private sectors tended to, to avoid that. Um, these types of events, you know, we're looking for people that have just Disruptive technology, 100%. And some of it is based on things that you would never even think of and stuff. And we're, we're really looking out into the commercial sector, seeing pieces and parts out there that we really like. And we are trying to get them to consider militarizing that product and bringing it into the military environment. That's a huge piece. Um, it's just the, you're looking for something different, right? Not the things, everybody has an idea, the general idea, but you're looking for the next generation, the disruptive piece, something that, you know, gives you an overmatch in an area. I've seen a lot of them are small businesses where people have, are geniuses and they've innovated things in laboratories. And, and, and what happens is historically is they find something that's phenomenal. Um, they tend to get bought up by bigger defense companies or other companies out there, or they go into the commercial sector and they just do great things there. And I, I guess you've, you've, you've touched on this to a certain extent. You know, one of the common story, storylines that we hear is that change across the board from a counterinsurgency type mission to the kind of near peer kind of conflict that's projected in the future. That kind of comes to a head on the special operations side of the house. With that in mind, I mean, what kind of challenges do you think the special operation units are kind of facing right now or, or are thinking about for sort of the next five, 10 years? Which is a very broad question, I know. See, I, I um, so the if you look at the United States and you see what's happened here, I mean, the chief of staff of the Army is General Milley. He's going to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs. About every 50 years, the U.S. Army commissions a huge report. The last one was done in the early 70s, completely transformed not only the U.S. Army, but it made us joint. That's what brought you Goldwater Nichols. That's what brought you to the American military you have today. And that was based off a study of the 1973 Arab-Israeli war. And we, you know, the big phrase was, if you can see it, you can hit it. And if you can hit it, you can kill it. And that's what brought on stealth, precision fires, all these different things. It took 20 to 30 years to get the science up to where it needed to be. But what we have today is because of what we saw in 1973. That's the U.S. Army. General Milley just commissioned another study. It's so profound that we don't even use the phases of war anymore, right? So inside the the U.S., we use things. uh, We have competition. 
then we have confrontation, and then we have conflict. And so those are the th- elements that they look in. And so if you look at competition, I mean, that's everything from espionage, sabotage, very shadowy, you know, gray zone type stuff, high end. Um, a lot of intelligence activities go in there, cyber stuff, but, but also a lot of uh, people on the ground, machines on the ground, sensors, those types of things. Very heavy special ops intelligence focus. The next piece is confrontation. And confrontation is you can actually get into a fight with somebody, but it's not full-scale major theater conflict where you're deploying huge conventional assets for a full-blown war. It's everything short of a full-blown war. Again, that's where the special operations, that's where Putin has little green men. That's where the Chinese uses fishermen to take over islands in the South China Sea. But, I mean, what you're seeing is, a, in my opinion, greater use of special operations and intelligence assets. Um, again, I just think it's a misinterpretation. I also don't think it's, a, it's new. I think this has been going on forever. I think at the end of the Cold War, I think we kind of we were celebrating and high-fiving because we could all go to Russia and China and hang out and drink beer and just, you know, be great. But I think deep down the competition's always been there. Um, and I think it's just resurfaced and stuff. So, but I think you're, 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 you're insane if you don't think that the special operations are going to have a huge role in, in, in competition, confrontation, and conflict. I just, it will, it, and it will often and um, almost always be the first entity in along with precision strike capabilities. So I just think it's different. You know, you're just going at a different target. I remember when I came in, you know, uh, I was in Panama. We were hunting for Manuel Noriega, and, you know, we couldn't find him, you know, the whole manhunt. Then we went to Somalia with Hadid, and, you know, we got a little bit better, but we weren't much better. But we're very good at hunting people right now. I mean, we're phenomenal at it. We've matured over time. And I, I don't think it's any different in the near peer thing. We will find their strengths. We will find their weaknesses. And we will absolutely be there to exploit them. Our biggest focus is making sure that the good guy network is interoperable. So when everybody shows up, you know, they all have their, their act together. They're on the same page. And they can actually function and work together from the beginning. You know, they're not trying to do it because you've got to move at the speed of war. The luxury of time is gone. Steve, some really strong presenters over the next two days. We're really looking forward to to hearing more. Um, Thanks for inviting us and thanks for your time today. Well, thank you. We appreciate you guys doing this. So welcome to this week's Industry Voice. This is the segment of the show that is brought to you in partnership with NAMO. I'm Tony Skinner, VP of Content here at Shepard Media, and I'm joined once again by Andre Lund, who's the SVP of Communications for NAMO. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Tony. So in the previous segment, we just heard from Stu, Stu Braden, uh, who's the president of, of the, and CEO of the Global Soft Foundation. Um, and our conversation was following their annual symposium uh, last week in Tampa. Um, so I guess I'm really curious, just Andrew, just to speak to someone within this industry, how you're seeing the special forces sector developing. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting to me as well. And I think uh, for us from industry, the soft community is one that we follow very, very closely. Uh, when NAMO was formed 20 years ago, that was one of our first sort of uh, key international target groups because the soft community, they're willing to invest in new technologies. They're willing to take uh, more risk in acquisition. They're not going to go for necessarily the big programs, uh, but they're 
going to be a trying out and testing new solutions. And for some like us, that's perfect. They value quality, they value high technology, and they're willing to pay for it. And look at it in, in a national scale. Uh, the U.S. Uh, Special Forces community, it's pretty sizable market. Uh, I mean, compared to the Nordic countries, and you look at the uh, permanent, like, full-time employed forces of all the Nordic uh, countries combined, that's about the size of U.S. OCOM. So uh, it's it's uh, still a pretty big market, and it's an important customer to work with. And they often are among the trendsetters internationally. Sure. And I guess one of the things that came out last week was, I mean, the, the capabilities they're looking for, you know, perhaps wasn't a surprise. Uh, you know, we're talking sort of C4ISR, electronic warfare, greater precision strike and mm-hmm. mobility capabilities. Yeah. Um, but what was striking was the sense of urgency mm-hmm. that, you know, that was coming across in, in the, the presentations and, and, you know, chatting to the guys on, on the floor. Yeah, that's a kind of typical also special operations community, right? It's much of the same as uh, for regular forces, but just more of it, more intense and faster, please, uh, preferably yesterday. So it's a, it's, it's a challenging uh, customer something to work with as well. But for us, it, we enjoy that. And I think a lot of people within industry do because that means you manage to get a break a little bit from the larger programs and you can uh, turn things around quickly, get the feedback and and then try to develop the next step. That's, uh, for us, that's the, the way to uh, develop things and it helps us keep ourselves on the toes, our toes as well to just, okay, are we going the right direction here? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the other one of the other aspects that certainly came out of, of last week was the fact that they they were very intent on, on talking to companies that, that were disruptive, you know, that were kind of more niche, mm-hmm. that could provide specific capabilities they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And quickly as well. Yeah, and I, and I guess, you know, the, the, the wider context there there is, you know, the fact that the, the, the mission set is changing to a, you know, to a great extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for the last 15, 20 years, uh, their focus has been very heavily on Middle East, on counterinsurgency, on uh, counterterrorism. And I think we're seeing their focus shifting uh, somewhat now towards a, a more mixed uh, mission set. So you're still going to have the counterinsurgency and the advisory role and counterterrorism is always going to be on their priority list. But it's also that they're seeing them changing back into supporting regular forces in combined operations in more high-intensity situations. And that demands a slightly different uh set of uh, equipment and training and uh, readiness. Uh, we see so it's it's part of that overall rebalancing that we're seeing in other areas as well. So you mentioned electronic warfare. For, you mentioned electronic warfare, for instance, uh, which is uh, definitely one area which they've been using more as a say, intelligence gathering tool and to listen in on local phone uh, conversations in areas they're operating and it's trying to uh, to uh, jam out IEDs, etc. And that's a very different uh, beast when you start looking in a high-intensity scenario when you're fighting against someone who maybe has that kind of tools themselves or when you start looking at range and standoff ranges and you're maybe a special, special forces unit might be used in a, a delaying or holding area, denying area kind of uh, mission and that demands very different kinds of focus and weapons and technology than if you are the ones who are 
trying to fight against someone who was denying area to you in a sense. So it's a mm -hmm. different perspective and different requirements. Um, yeah, certainly a fascinating sector, and it's it's one that we're going to sort of follow closely, yeah, in the coming months and years. So, mm -hmm. Andre, always insightful. So, thanks for your time. Thank you. This episode of Shepherd's Weekly Defence Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, Namo. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please head over to shepherdmedia.com to access all our news stories and subscriber content. We'd love to hear what you thought of the podcast, so please do subscribe, rate and give a review on iTunes or other podcasting platforms. Thanks for listening. Listener.